And that was very powerful. And God has blessed us with, you know, a lot of talent here to lead in different ways. And thank you so much. So we're going to go back to Romans 16. This is our second to last sermon on Romans, Romans 16 today. And as we begin to wrap up Romans and, you know, I started in uh, customer service when I was 16 and got my first part-time job. And I remember the district manager at the pet store I worked at, Jack's Aquarium and Pets. Some of you might remember, uh, know of Jack's Aquarium, who those Daytonians, Cheryl does, and maybe Don. I forget, Don and I went to the same school in different years. But uh, so, you know, sometimes I reference Dayton. Don knows the area. He lived right up the road from my grandparents, actually. Anyways, Jack's Aquarium and Pets, and I was working at this pet store, and I remember the district manager saying, you know, he just wanted employees, retail employees who could greet people and smile and how important a smile was when you greet people. And do you ever think about that, how much a smile can affect somebody's day? And I only say that to mean, to, to, to lead into really this, that yesterday we had a great men's breakfast with 26 men gathered, and it was just a great morning, a great message. And I go home, and in order to justify my donuts, I go on a jog, it's a slow jog, and Mercedes is riding her bike next to me, we're jogging, and I feel something gritty in my, in, in my mouth. And so I get home and I'm, you know, looking. I'm like, wow, somehow my front tooth got chipped. And so how much a smile is so important. But if you see me smile and it looks a little different, it's not because I was in a bar fight or anything like that. I haven't been in any bars, nothing like that. I don't know what happened. We can blame it on the devil, you know, or spiritual warfare. No, don't. Don't give the devil more credit than he deserves. It's just a fallen world. And, you know, I was thinking how frustrating that is because it's, you know, every, it's so noticeable. But then, you know, a different spin on it. I'm thankful that at least it wasn't, you know, a molar or something that's really going to cause a little pain that's chipped. Anyways, we're going into Romans 16. In Romans 16, we see a major focus on fellowship, on the body of Christ, on how important every person is. I saw a meme the other day. Well, how many of you heard that Neil Diamond song? I don't even know if Neil Diamond wrote it, but we all... We all know who Neil Diamond is, that singer, you know, and that song, Sweet Caroline. Have you heard it? Everybody heard it? You know, and I was seeing this meme and it said, and it showed like a battlefield, but it looked like a cartoon. So it's like a cartoon battlefield and two people, they're assumedly the victors of the battle. And they're looking at all these people, you know, lying in this field, presumably dead. And they say, how do we know who the people who really aren't dead are? How do we know? Uh, who the people aren't faking, you know, because that would make sense. I mean, if I was one, you'd want to fake until they go and then run away, you know. Um, how do we know who they are? And the, and the guy said, and the guy sings, sweet Caroline, and all the people faking go, bum, 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 you know. And so then they realize it. And it got me thinking about fellowship because you can go on YouTube and you can see now, YouTube is this website, in case you don't know, and you can see all these videos anybody can make. It's been around around 13 years. And you can see these videos of the Boston Red Sox. I think it's a, I don't really follow baseball, but Boston Red Sox. And they will play at baseball games that song, Sweet Caroline. In fact, I saw a video, because it got me interested, so I started going on YouTube looking at it, a video of Neil Diamond singing it. And Neil Diamond is singing the song, and he'll stop. At that bum, bum, bum part. And the whole stadium is singing the song. 
They're all singing it. I bet you if we started singing, take me out to the ball game right now, you could all sing it together. And it got me thinking about fellowship. We can get that fellowship at a baseball game. In fact, some people would even say they get their fellowship at a baseball game. One thing I love, and I mentioned that here the last few weeks, is how great it is when we can look on the congregation and see them singing with as much gusto and as much care as they are singing Sweet Caroline at a Boston Red Sox game or Take Me Out the Ball game at a Cincinnati Red game or Cleveland Indians game. Uh, I read this uh, by Keith Miller and Bruce Larson. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to fellowship, to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. If so many seek a counterfeit, at the price of a few beers. This person writes, with all my heart, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable, democratic, permissive, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it, and be accepted and loved and supported. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it, and don't we? In the church is a hospital for sinners. And so we're never going to be perfect there, but maybe be striving there. In the passage we'll look at today, we see Paul's final greetings. And in application is, we must be thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ? who support us and love us and care for us. One thing I was thinking on Friday night, I sent out the prayer chain for Adrian Wall. And, you know, and I told, came out and I told Megan, um, you know, one thing the prayer chain does, which maybe sometimes we don't think about, is we send out the prayer emails and phone calls. And it, does, it, it alerts the congregation to pray, but it also alerts the congregation to care. It alerts the congregation to give a phone call or send a text message or stop by and ask people, how are you doing, to offer actual physical, physical support. And many times God, as we pray, many times God calls us to do more than pray, offer physical support. I think I shared this here once before. Um, Chip Ingram shares a story about coming home when he was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary. He came home and his wife was crying. He said, what's wrong? And his wife said, well, you know, our neighbor's husband has said he's leaving her. And uh, he said, well, we can pray for her. They had kids that would play together and everything. He said, we can, we can pray for her. And she said, we've already done that. I've, met, I've prayed with her. We've already done that. I want us to, pray, I want us to pay for her rent. Her rent is due in a couple days. I want us to pay for her rent. See, so as they prayed, the Holy Spirit compelled them, do more than that. Now, the interesting thing is, and I think this is the main part that I emphasize if I shared this with you before, is he said, if we paid her rent, our rent was due in about 10 days and we wouldn't have money to pay for our rent. But he married up and his wife said, we need to go in faith and pay 
pay the neighbor's rent. So they did. And then they prayed that the Lord would provide for their rent. And every day they prayed. And every day there was no money, extra money coming in so that Chip and his wife could pay their rent. And then the day or the day before their rent was due, an envelope came in the mail with a Green Bay Packers logo on it. And with the letter in it, and in the letter it said, you may not remember me, but you gave a message at Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And it really impacted my life. And I had this extra money and thought I would send it to you. And it was enough and more to pay for the rent. Now, the Lord doesn't always provide necessarily like that. But the Lord does call us to pray for one another and actually to care for one another, to support one another, to go above and beyond. Are we thankful for other brothers and sisters? And so let's walk through. We're going to walk through verses 1 through 24, and then we'll finish with a beautiful doxology next week. And, you know, it is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So this is a reminder of being thankful for the gospel, being thankful for the body of Christ. Some people truly, I understand, cannot make it to worship. And I praise God for the ability to be virtual, you know, for situations like that. Sometimes they can't be, make it to worship for a period of time. Sometimes they're shut-ins, saints in their homes, I like to call them, and, and can't make it for a longer time. And that is a great, great, great ministry. Some people are sick for a season, things like that. So I'm not saying the, what I'm about to say as uh, being judgmental on anyone who's watching at home. But, you know, remember the virtual can never replace the physical. I hope we learn that lesson as we finish out, hopefully finish off this pandemic, hopefully soon. We see Phoebe greeted in verses one through two. And just to put this in context, again, we're finishing up Romans. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul shared a great and awesome doctrine of salvation. In chapters 12 and 13, he shared about uh, moral uh, ethics, about ethical living. In chapters 14 and 15, he shared about loving one another and respecting conscience issues. And now Paul is giving final instructions. Uh, John MacArthur shares about how chapter uh, 16 is most like, well, it, it's not most likely, it is. This is the most, the most um, extensive, detailed greeting that the Apostle Paul gave anywhere else in the Bible. He says, this chapter, which has almost no explicit teaching and contains several lists of mostly unknown people, is the most extensive and intimate expression of Paul's love and affection for other believers and co-workers found anywhere in his New Testament letters. This also provides insights into the lives of ordinary first century Christians and gives an inside look at the nature and character of the early church. I have heard some say that the Apostle Paul couldn't say hello without declaring the gospel. And we see that right here. We see that right here. He could not say hello without declaring the gospel. Thomas Schreiner suggests that we see the repeated phrases in Christ and in the Lord throughout Romans chapter 16. And that demonstrates that Paul's relationships were rooted in the new life of Christ. Paul's relationships were rooted in the new life of Christ. And as we go through this list, we will see those repeated phrases in Christ and in the Lord. Do you ever think about that? When you greet people at, the, at, at church, at a worship service, your relationship is rooted and grounded in the new life in Christ. That's why sometimes we sign our cards in Christ, in the Lord. 
Schreiner says this makes the greetings of Romans 16 far more than pleasantries. Rather, they are concrete expressions of the very gospel about which Paul writes so powerfully earlier in this letter. You know, it's like C.S. Lewis is a marvelous quote. You've never met a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, they're mortal. But you will never meet a mere mortal. Human beings are not mortal. We are created for eternal life in Christ or in hell. Hopefully, we care about that enough to, to, to even greetings share the gospel with people. Let's look at verses 1 through 2, Romans 16, 1 through 2. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. That is powerful. Again, look at this. He can't even give greetings without declaring the gospel. Welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of all the saints. And help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. N.T. Wright, uh, the theologian, points out that we cannot prove it, but it's likely that the one who delivers the letter read the letter. In this case, this is Phoebe. What's interesting there is this would be a woman giving the public reading of Scripture to the church at Rome. And he commends her. Notice that the ministry of women in the Roman church is quite evident in this chapter. Paul referred to nine prominent women in Romans 16. Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, Tryphena, Trophosa, Persis, Rufus's mother, Julia, and Nurus's sister. Nine prominent women in Romans 16. And this is really powerful how Paul commends Phoebe and he calls her a servant. It could also be translated deaconess or the translation I just wrote, read, the translation I just read, a patron of many. This also tells where she's from, Centria. In verse 2, Paul tells them to welcome or receive her, but receive her in the Lord. When we write to someone, do we say, welcome, receive him or her, but in the Lord? It's the grounding. It's the foundation. Paul warns them. Paul wants them. Sorry, the warnings later. Paul wants them to help her in whatever she may need from them. She has been a patron or a helper of many, including Paul. Phoebe served as a patron, probably with financial assistance and hospitality. Then we see this long list of other greetings in verses 3 through 16. Paul sends greetings to 26 individuals, 26. Let's uh, read it, and we'll kind of summarize some key points from this. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Notice how he doesn't just say greet, he says something about them. He was very personal. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Then he says, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches... <clears throat> Sorry, it stuck in my throat. All the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary. Now there's a word I can pronounce, a name I just get ready. I'm going to say the rest with confidence, so you don't know whether I'm mispronouncing him or not. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Antronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. 
Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Tryphena and Trophisa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlogon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus. Actually, that's Philologus. Julia, Nurus, and his sister, and Olympus. And all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And that ends 26 greetings. Priscilla and Aquila, that's the first two people listed after Phoebe. They are known as fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Paul says that they even risked their necks for him. Paul gives thanks to them. And he says all the churches among the Gentiles, including the church in their house. Prisca is given the diminutive name Priscilla in the book of Acts, chapter 18. So you might know Priscilla and Aquila, but here she is labeled as Prisca. Actually, it's a he, I think, Prisca. Eponidas is a total of three people greeted now. That's Paul's beloved and the first convert in Asia. Asia would be modern-day Turkey. So we're talking about the Turkey area now. Verse 6 mentions Mary. That's a total of four people greeted. This is most likely, pretty definitively, not the, mayor, not the mother of Jesus, but another Mary. Verse 7, now we have Andronicus and Junia. This is six people greeted now. A total of six people greeted now. Paul calls them outstanding among the apostles. Now that is very interesting because he uses the word apostles. He uses the word apostles, labeling Antronicus and Junia. And this means that Junia is a female. So he is including a female, a woman, as outstanding amongst the apostles. Now it is most likely pretty much definitive, I could say definitively, that the word apostle is being used in a non-technical sense. The early church had a strict uh, expectation of who would be an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord? And Paul called himself an apostle as one untimely born. So it was a strict, an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord. But an apostle means one who is sent. So right here though, it's still very, very significant that he's titling Antronicus and Junia as apostles, as sent. And also, by the way, um, he called them fellow uh, outstanding among the apostles, fellow prisoners, and they were in Christ. They knew Christ. They were Christians before the apostle Paul. Verse eight, he mentions Ampliatus. That's seven people greeted now. And he calls Ampliatus beloved in the Lord. John MacArthur makes a note that this was a common name among the emperor's household slaves at that time. He may have been one of those in Caesar's household because in Philippians chapter four, verse 22, we see Caesar's household referenced in Christians in Caesar's household. Don't miss the significance of this. The gospel is reaching the royal household at this time. Verse 9 mentions Urbanus, the fellow worker in Stachys. Now we see nine people greeted. Stachys is labeled as beloved. Verse 10, greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Isn't that powerful? If you are in Christ, don't you want to be labeled as approved in Christ? And I know right now we are kind of going into a lot of 
at least a little bit, I would argue not a lot, maybe you would argue a lot, of detail about these greetings. But notice that for many of these, not all, but many of the names, Paul is finding something positive to say. Can we be an optimist? I heard Chuck Spindall quote Mark Twain last week saying something like, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still lacing up its boots. We gravitate to negative things. But the Apostle Paul is finding good things to say about these people. And I don't want to skip over it. Verse 9, Urbanus, fellow worker in Stachys. Uh, I already said Stachys is beloved. Verse 10, greet Apelles, approved in Christ. That's the one I just said. Um, also, he says the household of Aristobulus. Now, this is nine people greeted. Aristobulus, uh, John, uh, one person writes, since Paul does not greet him personally, he was probably not a believer, although some relatives and household servants apparently were. One noted biblical scholar believes that he was the brother of Herod Agrippa, of Herod Agrippa I and the grandson of Herod the Great. And that's possible. This is such a positive list right here. Verse 11, Herodian. Paul calls him a kinsman. Maybe this means he is Jewish. I think that's most likely that he was Jewish. Uh, and also the household of narcissists who are in the Lord. That's 11 people. Verse 12, Tryphena and Trophosa. He calls them workers in the Lord. Also Persis, beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. That's 15 people greeted. Verse 13, he greets Rufus. That's the 16th person greeted. Paul says that Rufus is chosen in the Lord. And Paul says that he has been a, his mother has been a mother to me as well. Isn't that interesting? That's a personal thought right there. Rufus's mother, likely not Paul's actual mother. I think that's pretty certain. But she was maternal to the apostle Paul as well. And that is really, really nice to see that right there. Verse 14, Asyncritus, Phlogon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas. Now we see 21 people greeted, also the brothers with them. Verse 15, Phlogus, Julia, Nurus, and his sister, and Olympus. 26 greeted, and then he says, all the saints are with them. Verse 16, he says, now greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Paul wants them all to greet each other in an affectionate way. And we are going to practice that. So as we leave today, I want us all to greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we're not going to practice that here. But they still do in certain other cultures. I've heard missionaries speak who work with the church in Russia, or it might have been even previous Soviet Union when I actually heard this, and they would greet each other with a holy kiss. It is quite common in other cultures. The point is that Paul wants them to greet each other in an affectionate, loving, tender way. Notice how important community and hospitality was to the Apostle Paul. There was a lady named Marcella. Marcella, and she was born to a noble Roman family in 325 AD. That means this is the fourth century. She was highly revered by Jerome. So Jerome translated the Bible into the Latin Vulgate. He took the most recent Hebrew and Greek manuscripts and translated into Latin, and it's called Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And uh, this noble woman, Marcella, offered her palace as a sanctuary for Christians who are being persecuted. And what's, interestingly, what's interesting is Marcella was widowed at a young age, and she chose never to remarry, but she did have a large estate. She had a lot of money, a lot of resources, and she was hospitable to the point of letting Jerome work out of her place, out of her home, translating the Bible into the Latin Vulgate. 
That's the effect of hospitality. In verses 17 through 20, we see Paul's appeal. Look at verses 17 through 20 now. This is more instruction here. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. You could say brothers and sisters. To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Watch out for those who cause divisions. Notice that Paul says that he appeals to them. This is a final instruction. It really is Final instruction in this marvelous, magnificent, amazing letter of Romans. And what is it about? Watching out for those who cause divisions. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions, those who create obstacles. Those who cause divisions or create obstacles, but Paul does not leave it at that. Paul is talking about those who cause divisions or create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that he has taught. Paul has taught rich, rich, rich doctrine throughout this whole letter. And he's now telling them to guard themselves about those who are causing divisions, creating obstacles of, about that doctrine. There are things that the church argues about and divides over which we ought not. There are preference matters and scriptural matters. Paul wrote about salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. That's very clear from Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible, every, 60, every one of the 66 books of the Bible is pointing to, reflecting on, talking about salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And there are things that the church ought not argue about, ought not divide over. And there are other things that are very clear in Scripture as heresy to teach or preach Against A lot of those were settled in the first three, four hundred years of the early church. There were something like 15 major, major church councils responding to heresy, affirming who Jesus was and who Jesus is, fully God and fully man, affirming the Trinity, affirming salvation, affirming, you know, all these types of things. And Paul is saying, watch out for those who teach different doctrines. In Galatians 1, Paul says, you can't even entertain an angel from heaven talking about another gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the devil will come to us as an angel of light. It might seem like it's smooth talk and flattery. That's what he says right here. They come to you with smooth talk and flattery. We need to be careful that our abilities do not surpass our character. Somebody can have smooth talk and flattery, the perfect charisma, the perfect oratory skills, the perfect writing or public speaking skills, the perfect with all that, but their character is not right or their beliefs are wrong. And with smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the church and lead the church astray. We've seen that happen a lot. Even in the 20th century, right? But we've seen it throughout church history, and I strongly believe it's wrong doctrine 
that hurts the church more than anything else. I'm teaching on Wednesday nights, except this Wednesday, by the way. Don't come this Wednesday. Everything's canceled night before Thanksgiving. But First and Second Timothy and Titus are being taught Wednesday night. And Paul repeatedly emphasizes doctrine. He repeatedly emphasizes teaching. It's critical. So Paul is telling them here, watch out. Paul says, they do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts through what? Smooth talk and flattery. In verse 19, though, Paul transitions. In verse 19, Paul compliments them. Their obedience is known to all. Isn't that really nice? In Romans 1.8, Paul wrote about this. And Paul rejoiced over them. So Paul warns them. Paul says, watch out for those who deceive, for those who divide the church. And then Paul compliments them, which is really, really sweet. Paul wants them to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And that's what we need to pray for as well. Listen, if I teach any, let me back up. Everything I teach or preach or any one of our Sunday school teachers preach or teach needs to be backed up with the Bible. We cannot go above the Bible, adding to it. We cannot go below the Bible, taking away from it. If I had a whiteboard up here, I would draw a, a, a horizontal line, a line, you know, just straight across the middle. And you do not go above the Bible, which would be adding to the Scripture. You do not go below the Bible, which is taking away from Scripture. We can give background to the Scripture. We can give insight to the Scripture. We can go into the Greek and Hebrew or different wording. We can go to the cultural background, which is very, very, very important. We never take away from Scripture. We never add to the Scripture. Verse 20 is powerful. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. No matter what you face, the God of peace. Notice that God is a God of peace. But what's he gonna do? He will soon crush Satan. Notice, it, notice the pronouns, under their feet. Paul says that God will crush Satan under their feet. One writes, note Paul's careful grammar. God himself is the one who, who is crushing Satan. God himself is the one crushing Satan. He happens to use our feet. Isn't that interesting? God himself is the one crushing Satan, but he uses our feet. We are involved in the fight, but any victories in our fight are, merely, are not merely our work, but God's. We are involved in the, in the fight, but all the victories belong to God. He uses our feet. It was also, it, it, it was God... It was God who established peace in the church. Not Satan. Satan is probably the one um, uh, guiding the dissenting teachers in proximity to the body to disrupt it. God himself brings peace. It's a devil who's bringing the disunity. God is the God of peace. He brings peace. The devil brings disunity. How often it is. Because we are so given to negativity and pessimism and bad news, we let a lie or gossip or negativity spread. And we ought to be warned. I would use the word behoove, but we don't use that word much. It behooves us. It warns us. We ought to be warned not to let that stuff spread. I know somebody comes to you after church or after Sunday school or maybe during the week through a text, an email, phone call, and they just spread something that's just negative. And we need to be said, I'm not going to entertain this negative. 
Sometimes you have to. You have to check out if it's, if, you know, if you can, you know, the Bible says don't, accuse, don't entertain an accusation against an elder except by two or three witnesses. So I'm not saying you never entertain the negative, but we ought to be very, very cautious because that brings division over trivial matters oftentimes that are not even biblical issues. We see some more greetings. First, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then look at verses 21 through 24. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church, greet you. Aristus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul is giving greetings. And now this set of greetings are people that seem to be with the Apostle Paul. The other people may not have been present with the Apostle Paul. These people seem to be with the Apostle Paul. He references Timothy, Paul's most famous co-worker. He references Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and, and others. He references... Uh, Tertius, who was his scribe, his amuensis, I always have trouble with that word, his amuensis, uh, whatever, his, uh, they would usually dictate these letters and they would write them for them. So Paul would use this scribe. I like the word scribe. Why can't we just use these one syllable words that, you know, even a four-year-old can say? Anyways, um, he references his scribe. Gaius is his host. The whole church greets them. Aristus is a city treasurer. And then Cordus also greets them. There is an interesting verse, verse 24. And if you look down in your Bible, it's not in the manuscript. You might see, and I hesitate even bringing this up, but it is important for some of you. The ESV, which I have right in front of me, goes from verse 23 to verse 25. And we look at it and we say, what happened to verse 24? Well, if you look at the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, it would put verse 24 in brackets. If you look at the King James Version or the New King James Version... Verse 24 would be there. Why is that? It is because, and I've studied this a lot, because I was a King James Version only person from the time I was 16 years old till almost 23 years old. And so I've studied this a lot. It's because verse 24 was not in the oldest manuscripts. It's as simple as that. The King James Version was translated from what, what was called the Textus Receptive or the majority text, and it was passed down from one scribe to another scribe to another scribe to another scribe over at that point, something like 1,600 years of church history. The King James Version was translated in 1611, and the translators of the King James Version did a great job. They did the best that they could of that time. And you know what the translators said? They said, it's going to need updated. It was rushed and it needs updated. And you know what? It was updated. It was updated again and again and again and again and again. So the King James Version, if you read the King James Version, the King James Version you're reading is from the 1770s. It is not from 1611. And now we have the new King James. So what happened was in the last 200, 300 years of the church, we found many, 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 actually, I'll give you a number, 5,000 of them, early Greek manuscripts from the early church. They go back to the John Rylands manuscript of 125 AD. We have almost a complete New Testament from around 300 AD, if not even before that. God has provided all these for us. And as we go back, we see that verse 24 is not in the oldest manuscripts. So how did this happen? A scribe would be dutifully copying the, the, the text, dutifully, carefully copying the text. And then they might make a little marginal note. 
We all do it, right? We make little marginal notes in our Bibles. And then the, the, the scribe passes on that text to another scribe. And they are dutifully copying the text. And they think, oh, it looks like the previous scribe forgot to insert this in here. And a marginal note becomes another verse. It's innocent. It happens. They did the best they could. God used it. We need to know that there are over 5,000, as I said, uh, manuscripts in existence, early church Greek manuscripts. There are over 25,000 if you go to the Latin and other languages. God has given us an embarrassment of resources. On 99%, they agree on everything. All these Greek manuscripts agree on everything. In the 1% where they differ, most of them are grammatical. Most of them are commas and spaces and apostrophes and things like that. And the little bitty bit where they actually differ in wording, it doesn't affect doctrine. This does not affect doctrine right here. So I just wanted to share that in case it'd be a stumbling block for you. Fellowship. Fellowship's important, isn't it? In 2013, I ran a marathon, the Cincinnati Marathon. It was two weeks after, or I think it was about two weeks, after the Boston Marathon bombing. And some 30,000 people ran the Cincinnati Flying Pig Marathon that weekend. A lot of people. The half marathon and full marathon start out together. We're all gathered together. We're all nervous. We're all anxious to get started. And depending on your time, you're lined up. You know, depending on your pace, you're lined up. So I was lined up with like the eight-minute mile paces because now I'd be like the 12 or 15-minute mile pace. But I was a little faster then. Okay, and I'm lined up. You're waiting to go, and they give the shotgun start or whatever they did. And it took a couple minutes, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, to actually pass the starting line. And as I pass the starting line in honor of the Boston Marathon, Balming. They are playing that song, Sweet Caroline. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and it was really cool as I passed that, that we're all united, we're all in agreement, we're all in prayer for the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing. And there is another element of fellowship. And can we have that fellowship and more so in the church? As I ran that marathon, one thing interesting about marathons, you're all supporting another. So they made us, I didn't like it, but you wear like a bib on your front and your back saying your number. And there's a little computer chip in there that, that records your time as well. And they made me wear one that said first timer because it was my first time marathon running. And as I was running, people would run by and say, hey, good luck, first timer. Good job. You're cheering your, each other on. And as we run the race of the Christian life or walk the race of the Christian life, are we cheering each other on? There was a member of a certain church who previously had been attending services regularly, but he stopped going. He stopped going. So the pastor decided to pay him a visit. It was a cold winter evening, and the pastor drops in for the visit, and they greet each other, and they go, and they sit down in front of the fire. There's a, there's a fire going in the fireplace, and they didn't, say any, they didn't say anything. The pastor and this other gentleman, they just sit down. They sit in, in, in front of the fire, and as they sat there, the pastor grabs the fire tongs, and he takes one of the burning hot embers and he pulls it away from the fire and sits it, you know, a little bit away from the roaring fire. And they still sit there silently. They don't say a word to each other. But that ember that was really hot and burning very strongly with the rest of the fire, what happened? It starts to cool down. The red glow of the ember goes dark. After a couple more minutes of silence, the pastor takes that red-hot ember, puts it back in the fire, 
and the glow comes back. He looks at his watch and he realizes it's time to go. And the, the other gentleman who had been away from the church for a while said, thank you for the visit and thank you for the fiery sermon. I'll be back in church next Sunday. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you so much for the sweet, sweet, sweet fellowship we have in the church. I pray, Lord God, that this gathering at Bethel Friends will be motivated to more and more fellowship with the body of Christ. We fellowship, Lord, in Christ. We come together in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we thank you so much for that. And Lord God, I, for one, am thankful because I believe Bethel Friends is a caring church. We really care about one another. We really love one another. And so, Lord God, I just ask that you help us to do better. Help us to continue to build on that. Thank you for Paul's example, giving optimistic, positive, loving greetings to those in the church in Rome and those with him and from them. May we be loving. May we be encouraging. May we be optimistic. May we try to squelch divisiveness. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.